There's a story that I think may be apocryphal, but as my friend Marcus Borg used to say, this story may never have happened, and yet I know it's true. There's a story about a concert pianist who was in the middle of a concert, somewhere like the Arlene Schnitzer Concert Hall or something like that, in the middle of a complicated piece. It was Shostakovich or Rachmaninoff or something like that, pounding away in a room full of satisfied concert goers. And suddenly, from the back of the auditorium came a blood-curdling scream. And the, the, everyone was startled. The, the pianist was so startled that he picked his hands up from the keyboard, got up from the bench, and sort of looked to see if everything was okay. Down the main aisle of the concert hall came running a five-year-old, a six-year-old child screaming in, in hysterics, runs up onto the stage, proceeds to the piano, sits down, and proceeds to pound his or her hands all over the keys, making an ungodly ruckus. Nobody quite knew what to do. They were in shock. A couple ushers like, moved their way closer to the stage. Do we need to intervene? But the pianist, in a split-second decision, moved to either side of the child, standing kind of over her but behind her, put, their, put her hands on either side of the child's hands, and began to improvise a concerto, incorporating the pounding from the angry child. Working with, the, working with what she was getting, and together she calmed the child down. The music actually kind of helped to mitigate against the pounding. And then the two of them, the excellent concert pianist and the five or six year old child, began to create music together out of thin air, completely improvised. The audience was spellbound. Improvisation is holy work, I believe. Some musicians are trained to do this. Our own Bruce Neswick has been described as one of the greatest organ improvisers in the nation. He teaches master classes to help other organists learn this skill. Actors learn this skill. My friend Terry is a, an actor and a playwright in New York City. His training is actually in improvisational theater, theater troops like the Groundlings in Los Angeles or Second City in Chicago, places that train people like Tina Fey and Amy Poehler to go on and be on Saturday Night Live. Actors who are trained in taking a spontaneous idea from an audience and with no rehearsal and no script, creating a scene that makes you laugh hysterically. Terry's work, my friend's work, has actually become bringing those skills into corporate environments. Business leaders are starting to pay attention to skills that artists and actors have perfected over decades, and they're bringing this more you know, right-brained, creative approach into corporate settings. So last month, Terry was in Japan. He flies around the world training business leaders and advertising professionals, CEOs, corporate execs, the skills of improv, of theater improv. And the basic skill for improv, the kind of, you know, center of the whole discipline, is say yes. Right? That's the first thing you learn in an improv class. Improv dies if I'm your scene partner and you begin a scene by sidling up to me and saying, boy, sure is a miserable day, so hot out here on the ranch. And I say, oh, we're not on a ranch, we're sailors on a ship. Like, that's called blocking, right? I refuse to accept the bid that you have handed me. I counter with one of my own. It shuts down the scene, right? So basic improv training basically starts with saying yes to your partner's bids, right? How to accept a bid that you are being offered instead of blocking it. So you say, ain't it a miserable day to be a ranch hand? And I say, sure is, Hank. Temper thermometer just hit 90. Or you could fry an egg on the sidewalk. Sure is, Hank. I figure it's time to hang up our hats and call it a day. In improv, as in life, we have options when we receive a bid. A situation is thrown our way. We receive a piece of news, someone 
treats us in a certain way or says something to us, accuses us of something, often that's how this happens. Life throws us a lemon of some kind or another, and for most of us, our instinct when we are threatened is to block the bid, right? To deny, to refute, to argue back, to defend. Blocking is often a violent response of some kind or another. You put your dukes up, right? You get ready for a fight. So an alternative approach, what you learn in improv, is to accept, right? To say yes to a bid that is offered you. On first glance, that kind of acceptance seems to be kind of like what Jesus is advocating in these famous words from Luke's gospel that we just heard. Love your enemies, he says. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. If anyone strikes you on the cheek, offer him the other one also. And from anyone who takes away your coat, do not withhold even your shirt. Give to everyone who begs from you. If anybody takes your goods, do not ask for them again. Accept the bad behavior that you are dealt and learn how to love it. Just say yes. That's an easy principle on one hand. Let's be clear, though, that when it is read this way, Jesus' advice for dealing with enemies can actually be pretty destructive. Tell a spouse who's being abused by her partner. Tell a child who's being bullied on the playground. Tell the, the victim of a racially motivated attack. If anyone strikes you on the cheek, turn the other one also. And you've just perpetuated violence, right? You've enabled an abuser, a bully, a mob of violent white supremacists. If Jesus is really telling his followers simply to roll over and accept bad behavior when it, when it happens to them, then I think Christianity really is what a lot of people think Christianity is, which is a system whereby the powerful people are given cover in order to continue to prey upon the weak, and evil is allowed to flourish because nobody dares to confront it. That's nice Christianity, right? We're all too busy loving our enemies to stop them from doing us harm and other people harm. So I gotta tell you, I kinda struggle with Jesus' advice about how to deal with enemies, especially in days in which the forces of xenophobia and racism, the violent behavior of bullies and abusers is being dragged into the light in a lot of places and is often condoned and enabled and sometimes even endorsed by those who are in power, urging acceptance rather than blocking, to use the improv terms. I mean, maybe that works inside the four walls of a comedy club, maybe even it works inside the four walls of a corporate boardroom. It feels like a mistake in the rough and tumble world of human conflict. It feels like theological cover-up for what is essentially conflict avoidance. And when we avoid conflict, people get hurt. So it turns out that simply accepting, simply learning how to say yes rather than blocking, does not just enable bad behavior, it also results in improv theater scenes that don't actually go anywhere. Uh, nobody actually wants to watch a conversation between two people who just keep agreeing with one another. I learned this when I was in high school and I was taking improv classes. That makes for a really boring scene. Two people who just keep affirming what one another says. So improv trainers, in order to create interesting dramatic scenes out of improvisational situations, actually teach this third response. It's kind of like improv 201, if you like. It's the gold standard of improv comedy which is that you learn not just to accept your partner's bid, but you learn a technique that the, the famous improv teacher Keith Johnston calls over-acceptance. 
Overacceptance is almost like halfway between a block and an accept. In overacceptance, you don't just affirm your partner's bid, you don't just say yes to it, you respond to it, often with delight, in a way that makes the story more interesting and raises the stakes of the situation. The classic formulation of an overacceptance is to respond to a bid with the phrase, yes, and, right? You don't just say yes, you build on it. You, you situate your partner's bid into a larger framework, a scene, that makes it more interesting and moves the story forward. And it turns out that once you start looking for it, yes, and responses to bids are all over the Bible. We see it this morning in the, in the story of Joseph, right? We heard a little bit of that story. Joseph's brothers have sold him into slavery. They have told his father that he's dead. They steal his inheritance. And then at the end of the story, when the brothers realize that Joseph has been made this huge bigwig in the kingdom of Egypt and has access to food storage that might save their family, the brothers are pretty convinced that Joseph is now going to take out his revenge and throw them into jail. But Joseph famously turns the tables on them. He uses the principle of yes and, the principle of over-acceptance, and not only forgives his brothers, but then goes one step further. He allows them, he actually kind of forces them to move in with him. He takes them in, log, log stock and barrel, into his home in Egypt. He doesn't block, he doesn't accept, he over-accepts. He turns their bad behavior back around on itself, and in the process, Joseph saves an entire people and begins a whole new chapter in the biblical narrative. And Joseph, when asked about it later, ascribes his behavior not to his own generosity and munificence. He ascribes it to God's grace. Joseph says, I do this because this is how God is. Joseph says to his brothers, what you did to me was meant for evil. God used it for good. You threw me a bid that was meant to do me harm, and God over-accepted that bid. God said yes to it, and then turned it on its head in order to move a very different scene forward. Over-acceptance is a principle upon which Jesus builds his entire ministry. It's an entire ethical framework that Jesus is teaching. Love your enemies, right? Do good to those who hurt you. That's not a call to just meekly accept the bad behavior of a wrongdoer. The examples that Jesus gives are about confronting an enemy's violence with creativity. Jesus says when somebody strikes you on the cheek, offer him the other cheek also. We have to unpack a little bit the first century social norms he's talking about in order to understand what Jesus is really saying here. But in Jesus' world, the word that he uses for strikes you is a backhanded slap across the cheek. That's the way that a master punishes his slave. It's a form of violence, a backhanded slap that is rendered by one in power to one who has no power. A backhanded strike was about subjugation, right? It was about control. And so when Jesus suggests to slaves, to women and children, the weak and oppressed, these are the people that Luke is naming, right? These are the people who are in the audience, the impoverished, the suffering, the weak. When Jesus invites those people not to hit back to their oppressors, their masters, not to fight violence with violence, but instead to improvise, right? To get creative, to turn the other cheek, right? A slave who is turning the other cheek is literally forcing his master's hand. You can give me a backhanded slap across my left cheek, but if I turn my other cheek in order to strike me across that cheek, you have to give me an open-handed slap, right? And in first century parlance, an open-handed slap is the slap that is used between two social equals. 
So by saying, if somebody strikes you on the cheek, offer him the other one also, Jesus is essentially saying, make your opponent recognize you as his social equal, and then accept the slap. He's advocating nonviolent protest. Right? This is actually where the principles of nonviolence come from. Responding to violence, not with further violence, but by turning your enemy's violence back against him and shaming him in the process. You find a creative way to turn the table, to out-narrate your enemy. You say yes to the bid, but then you use it to tell the story that you want to tell. And according to Jesus, that is what it looks like to love your enemies. We don't just meekly accept their bad behavior. We over-accept it. Rather than acquiescence, rather than punching back, we choose creativity. When the world throws us anger, we choose joy. We choose surprise. That's how God works. Both blocking and accepting bad behavior are like non-options for God, right? Those are ultimately failures of the imagination. And God is all about imaginative responses to human violence that fit, that frame that violence then into this larger story that God is telling. And that's a story about justice and mercy and disenfranchised people being enfranchised. In some ways, you might call Jesus the first great improv teacher. He's teaching God's ways of imaginative overacceptance to people who are desperately looking for a third way between rolling over and accepting and fighting back. How do I respond to my enemies with creativity rather than anger? How do I, how do I move a scene forward? How do I out-narrate my opponent? How do I tell the story I want to tell? Own the narrative, right? This is that's exactly what the concert pianist is doing in the story, right? When the angry little girl starts pounding away on the keys in the middle of the concert, to block would be to call up the ushers and drag the kid away, kicking and screaming. To accept would be to walk off the stage and let the child own the situation, right? Let her take over and destroy the concert, essentially. The pianist doesn't do either of those things. She over-accepts. She places her hands on either side of the angry, violent child and tells the story she wants to tell. She reframes the behavior and weaves, works with what she's being given, weaves it into a whole new piece of music that has never been heard before. The spiritual life, I think, is about improvisation. We don't know what we're doing most of the time, do we? I, we? We trust that there's a larger game plan at work, but nine times out of ten, if you're like me, you're responding to bids not with any forethought, not with any planning. We respond out of instinct, right? And one way to think about what Christianity is for is to think of it as kind of like a master improv class. Christianity is about apprenticing ourselves to the master improv teacher. His name is Jesus Christ and learning how to train our instincts so that we instinctively respond to violent behavior with creativity rather than by pushing back against it. And we are good pushers, right? Our world teaches us how to be good pushers. We're angry children. We know how to bang away on the cosmic piano with clenched fists and outraged cries. And God knows how to work with that. God the impro improvisateur, God, the concert pianist who gently puts her hands on either side of our angry hands and starts weaving this new melody on the keyboard, this beautiful song that we have never heard before. That's not acceptance, that's grace. That's transforming violence into something that is beautiful. That's the principle, I think, that the whole universe is, is based on. That there is nothing that is so far gone, there's nothing that is so broken, so maimed, so seemingly destroyed, that cannot be worked with, 
that cannot be refashioned into something beautiful. Keith Johnstone, the uh, improv teacher, once famously said, you know, it's not the offer, it's what you do with the offer. And when we break out of the tired old scripts that our world has handed us about how to engage conflict, when we let those scripts go and start improvising, sometimes that's when the music starts. <laughs>